Is a painting your thing? Or are you more sci-fi with Luke and Leia? I'm Amit Power. From lumbar plexus to, well, virtually nothing. There are plenty of ways to say hip-hop hooray. I'm Jeff Gadsden. And this is Block It Like It's Hot. Hey Jeff, you know what? It's a great time to be alive as we are here recording episode 5. We're going to be dropping some tips on what you can do for your hips. Are you ready for hip up? Hooray. <laughs> nice. Wow. That <laughs> instant rhymes at the very beginning. Uh, yeah, love the rhymes and the title. Hip hop hooray. Kind of works on two levels, right? That celebratory vibe. Hey, we, we're excited yeah. about hips. We love we love hips. Naughty by nature, callback, love it. Well, I was going to say hip hop Sean, but then I was thinking that was too complicated. Hip-hop-a-ray, so, yeah, anyway. Sean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. Ne- that's sort of next level. Let's wait, for, <laughs> let's wait for season two before we start getting too complicated with the titles. Listen, I'm happy that I'm happy you like the title. That was that was my inspiration. You're right uh, on both levels. So listen, man, um, it's been a couple of weeks since our uh, last podcast. Tell me what you've been up to. I'm curious to know. Lots has happened. It's uh, always busy. I, I was just uh, got back this morning from Las Vegas. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, I had a meeting uh, about orthopedic value-based care. Real, a lot of really cool ideas and people, actually. There's a, there's a good showing of anesthesiologists, but what I like about this meeting is there are mostly orthopedic surgeons and wow, some administrators okay. and some other stakeholders who are, you know, all kind of like shooting for the same goal. But it's it's different ask, answering questions on a panel when your audience is not blockers like me right but that but but that must be a really great opportunity to get our voice heard by uh, by that group by that population it's really important that they know what's what's available because as i've heard as i've been looking into regional anesthesia in the united states there's a great variety um of levels of regional anesthesia that are practiced depending upon where you are so it must be a great opportunity to talk about what can be done right well totally and you know i, I shared with that audience at, at one of one of the talks I gave, kind of the recipe we talked about with the knees, and um, mm-hmm. and and I actually share with them your story about your surgeon, how he came back so impressed that first day, Absolutely. and uh, it resonated. Like a lot of people came up afterwards and said, "Hey, I I need to get our anesthesia group doing all this stuff. Can we use you as a resource and that that sort of thing?" So that was it was cool. It was cool. That sounds very very exciting. Actually. Yeah. Vegas, <laughs> Vegas is a is a trip though. I mean, we uh, I went for I went for a run with a friend on Saturday morning, and uh, he's a bit of a nut. We he said meet me in the lobby at five forty five. I'm like, oh come, come on. And so, but what was neat about it was we had the strip to ourselves. We ran up the strip and back, and um, you see some you see some things, man. At six o'clock in the morning on the Las Vegas Strip. I can only imagine, but I'm kind of guessing they're not necessarily things we want to share on here. Well, <laughs> there's 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 uh, all range of of <laughs> PG R rated stuff going on. We you know you might see a couple of homeless guys fighting. Um, okay dead body I, I wasn't sure maybe oh my goodness no but it was cool you start i started the run out with all the lights yeah lights are flashing and it, it felt like you were at you know nighttime in vegas and then you, the sun came up on the run and we came back and arrived back at daytime so it was fun very very cool 
What have you been doing? Uh, well, actually, my my I think my couple of weeks has not been quite as exciting as that. Um, but I've had some great opportunities, and they were exciting. So we had a local teaching and training day for our registrars in the region. So I actually managed to get together with some of my colleagues from Guys and St Thomas's. Someone called Megan Smith, who's a consultant and thesis and a barrister. Uh, so she does oh, law cool. and regional anesthesia. So she was talking about legal aspects of regional anesthesia. Uh, Desire on Watche, who is massive into um, obstetrics and regional she talked about ambulatory spinals at this study day nice um and toby ashkin one of our ruk um board members was actually talking about regional anesthesia in patients on anticoagulant medication so that was really fascinating um but the reason the meeting was so exciting was that we got a chance to focus on some of those core as we call them ruk plan a blocks and infuse them and teach them about that so it was a cool it was a cool day I managed to recruit, I hope, a few uh, regional anaesthetists. Um, I also had a couple more free trainee free days where I didn't have trainees with me. So again, I had to do all the, the blocks. You know, I had to see the patients, draw up the, the drugs and talk to myself, as we said last time. Yeah. And I, I got caught out by, a ch- well, I nearly got caught out by a cheeky tibial nerve when I was doing an ankle block the, the other day. Cheeky tibial nerve. Cheeky tibial nerve. They, those guys can be cheeky. We, like wasn't in the right spot? Completely wasn't. You know, you know sometimes the flexalysis longus. It's cheeky tibial nerve. Can, can masquerade as a tibial nerve. And this time, the tibial nerve was anterior. The cheek. To the posterior tibial artery. Now, that was naughty. <laughs> but thankfully, I followed some of our basic rules and I managed to find I managed to find it. I hope you taught that nerve a lesson. I did. Yeah, good. <laughs> I surrounded good. it with local anesthesia. Uh, that, <laughs> fine. All right, man. So what do our listeners have to look forward to today? Well, um, you know, Jeff, we've had some Twitter follower feedback and they wanted us to cover the same style of discussion that we did for our knee episode, but this time talking about hip arthroplasty surgery. So, you know, we set the precedent with knees. We better not uh, disappoint. So we're going to be talking about hips. But you know what, Jeff? Before we get stuck in, we've had some great questions and interaction online. Shall we do some shout outs? Oh, full show. Um, we we, fo- we have show. We'll fo- show. We have had some questions uh, from Twitter regarding guess what? ESP. Um, oh, first yes. from Stefan van Herweg from Belgium and uh, Betul Basaran okay. from Turkey. So Stefan says he stopped performing nice. lumbar ESP after an episode of lower limb paralysis and after reading some studies showing no benefit over multimodal analgesia. And Batul quotes the varying study outcomes as well and thinks that like ESP might help, but wonders about a T-lip block um, and what if it might be better. And so what do we think about that? Well, listen, um, just help me out here because I know, I'm definitely no T-lip ex- expert. So T-lip is thoracolumbar, what is the IP? Uh, internet protocol? I don't even... Uh, um, intellectual property? <laughs> no. Is thoracolumbar... Insert... Interfascial <laughs> yeah, plane. I think, that's it. I think it's thoracolumbar interfascial plane. Now, listen, I, I, I've heard Kijin Chin talk about this. He's got some great videos on that. I, I, I've yet to, I, I don't do them. I've done lumbar ESPs, and as yet, so far, I have not had an issue with lower limb paralysis. I'm just trying to think, that must be really quite bad luck with a lumbar I, ESP to get lower I, limb I would paralysis. have to think so. I mean, we've, we've done three years now of this uh, lumbar ESPs for spine surgery regularly and have not had a problem with epidural spread or interference with neuromonitoring 
or patients waking up and ugh, it looks like we got you know we we got the ventral roots and they've got a lumbar plexus block so because that's got to be quite hard jeff right you know we got to get deep to that fascia that fascia is quite thick in the lumbar region right so you got to get deep to it and into the posterior aspect of the psoas muscle and inject quite a lot like doing an intertransverse process block but in a lumbar region yeah i think that's it right so i think as we talked about it on the esp episode in contrast to what i'm trying to do and what you're trying to do with your yeah. pepper pot the the fascial plane yeah. and get get stuff you know but yeah. get, get stuff in front of the you know that fascial plane so it's almost like an mtp i'm not trying to do that for any of the spine stuff i'm i'm truly hitting mm. the dorsal surface of the transverse process and keeping it in yeah. in the esp muscle or lifting in terms of t-lip i have tried it i'm not sure if it's just our patient population or maybe i'm just not very good at ultrasound i <laughs> I think, I think you know, I have a hard time finding a fascial plane in a lot of people in that muscle group. Like I put the probe on and I'm like, okay, well, there's the ESP muscle, but whether I can find the iliocostalis versus the longissimus or, you know, I, I'm like, dude, hit the bone and just put your local there. I, plus, it, it's so much easier to teach a trainee just to hit the bone. Right. Mm. And now I'm now I'm confused again because if I can't even remember what the acronym's supposed to stand for, there's literally no way I'm going to be able to do the block. But I, so it could be something thoracis lumbicum. Anyway, uh, yeah, I agree. When I stick the probe on the back, I have not, with confidence, been able to to regularly identify them. But it may be a you know a product of the fact that I, I don't I haven't tried hard enough. I haven't practiced hard enough. So I think yeah, you know, we're, we're both of us are intrigued by the low limb weakness um that stefan has had um but uh, i'm not definitely not a tulip expert and you probably say you're not either right no and the other thing i will say in response to that question that i'm thinking about it is there are anatomic obviously differences and some patients show up with previous spine surgery and you know local contract to places where you don't expect it so it's not i i, I hesitate i don't want to imply that there is a technique issue with Stefan's approach or anything no, like that. No. Could, sometimes the patient's body does weird things with local. Completely. And I think I think that's a, I think that's very fair. Well listen, now moving on, uh, Tanya Selek, who is known on Twitter as Gong Gas Girl, um, from Australia, but uh, yeah. originally New Zealand, was shocked. She was shocked by the Gadsden self ESP <laughs> block and was surprised about my block failure when I when I sort of fessed up to having a, a block that didn't work. So we're both delighted that Tanya has listened in uh, and is supporting us down under. Yeah, totally. Uh, uh, Tanya, if you only knew half of the shenanigans that go on at the Duke Rap block suite. I'm trying to work out if I could say shenanigans in an Aussie accent. I think you just did. I mean, check. All right. On you, mate. <laughs> Sorry, that was the accent done. <laughs> uh, one more shout out from Teresa Pereira from Portugal, who loves the show. Thanks, Teresa, and is also a Star Wars fan. Her cats are called Luke and Leia. <laughs> yeah. So cool. And uh, she says, despite having watched the Duke videos that are translated into Portuguese, she's going to go back to the originals just for the sound effects. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Thanks, Teresa. Uh, I, you know, I really am so fortunate to have an amazing team of Portuguese anesthesiologists that have done that, done those translations. I'm really so grateful Absolutely. and uh, I'm glad that it's be, it's a resource for all the Portuguese speaking people around the world. All right, Jeff, man, let's get into the main episode. What do you reckon? Let's do it. In the same way that we started off the knee episode, what I want to know is if you were having your hip replaced, what would you want? Let's start off first. Would you want a GA or would you want a spinal? This is, so I, I'm team spinal for me. Yeah. And, uh -huh. and I think okay. that more so, even more so than knees, the evidence 
supporting a safer procedure under spinal is is robust enough in in, in mm-hmm. hips that I have no equipoise there. I, and when you're talking about safer, you're talking about complications. You're talking about mortality. Are you looking at the the stuff that came out of Stavros Memsudis's work, or what what are you referring to exactly? Yeah, there's another there's a number of of big data studies looking back at uh, you know tens and tens of thousands of patients and yeah. things like respiratory complications, bleeding, DVT, cardiac complications, big time morbidity that you you care about, right? It's not just, well, pain scores were two versus three. Okay. So so, so your, your team spinal. And, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'll tell you the one thing that that's confused me about hips. And I'm, I'm very happy to say and to, to own up to the fact that I'm, I'm confused. I have seen so many variations in practice when it comes to anesthesia for, uh, for hip surgery that I, I'm i not convinced that there's an optimal or an ideal way because I've, I've worked with some surgeons who are absolutely adamant that we're not allowed to put any blocks in and they can do everything with, um, with their own local infiltration. And I've worked with other surgeons that say, I don't mind, do what you want, put in a fasci- fasciolyaca. And I've seen some surgeons actually ask for a GA plus a spinal. They definitely don't want the patient to be awake. They don't want monitored anesthesia care. They want the patient to be asleep, but they want the benefit of having a spinal. So this is where I'm totally confused. So I think if I, my head is telling me that I should ask for a spinal, and I think I probably would. Okay. Uh, I'm I'm slightly nervous about the additive effect of a general anesthetic plus a spinal from a cardiovascular point of view. So uh, I think I'm probably, I, I am team spinal. But I I do want to get up and about straight afterwards. I think I'd much rather get up and about and re- reduce my risk of uh, thromboembolic events afterwards. So you know, I, this is coming down to that whole analgesia versus mobility uh, uh-huh, thing right. here. Yeah, because there are things that we can do that can make people feel really comfortable, but then maybe they won't mobilize afterwards. What's important to you? Do you think? Uh, do you, uh, yeah, I'm just going to have you go back. Did you just say ep- a spinal plus general anesthesia? Is that an option that people are doing? Oh my goodness, yeah, they may be a minority, but there are definitely some surgeons that are asking for the combined approach of a spinal anesthetic plus a GA. Uh, okay, interesting. I mean, and to be fair, to be fair, uh, we do... To be fair. <laughs> we, we do our spinalists with hips with propofol sedation such that the patients are not, we're not engaging in sparkling conversation with them. So I, you, you, can, you can say that's a general, but... There's no airway device and et cetera, et cetera. Are you, is that what you're talking about? Or? No, no, no. So, so I think we could probably have a whole episode on monitored anesthesia care and the difference in practices between the, the you know North America and, and, and the UK. No, I'm talking about people are doing a proper general anesthesia, so an endotracheal tube or a supraglottic airway in addition to the spinal. And that may be due to the fact that the whole concept of GAWA, GA without an airway, uh, is not something that, we, that we're very big on here because of the potential oh. risks and complications. So we don't do a lot of, I think, is it Gawa? G- general anesthesia without airway. Power no like Gawa. Yeah, power definitely no like Gawa. <laughs> okay. No, and listen, and that I think that is that is a factor that we should touch on, is that if this procedure ends up outlasting the spinal, now yes. I have to deal with an airway in, yes. in the lateral position, in an obese patient, under the drapes, et cetera, et cetera. And so this adds a layer of complexity, and that that mm. does become a, a consideration preoperatively in terms of my thinking. I think that's cool. Let's let's shelve that. We'll chamber that and mm. use that as a as a, a topic for later. Yeah. Analgesia versus mobility. 
Well, you know my feelings on short-acting spinals, and so if if I can do a lidocaine or mepivacaine... Do you mean ambulatory spinal? Ambulatory. See, again, it just sounds better with the (laughs) British accent. (laughs) Ambulatory spinals. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I'm a total fan, and so... That is that is again our, our now our default. So lidocaine or mepi. But again, but let but let me get my head around this. So if you're going to do that, you have got to ensure that your surgery is going to be a, a fixed duration, right? So you have got to get the spinal in at the right time. You got to get them to the OR or to the or to the operating theatre, and their surgery's got to start right on time. And it can't outlast the 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 duration of action of the medication. And that makes me nervous. A big part of my day now is texting. I get on a text thread with both ORs, and there's the circulating nurse and the either the resident or the CRNA in the room, and my block team. So there's a big big text chain. All right, we're closing on skin, rolling, and that gives us our cue to do you know do the spinal for the next one okay. and so the time totally fair comment though because it has it failed ever? of course and then you know a tray is opened up in the or that's like got a dirty instrument or something yeah. and now we're eating into spinal time while we get that tray replaced so what about now do you do that irrespective of who's operating so will you always have the senior most surgeon doing the operating so i guess what i'm asking is we we work in teaching hospitals and we have um consultants doing the operations and we also have fellows or senior registrars doing the operations which can affect the operative time so this is presumably you have similar issues and do you have to have these discussions and make plans accordingly well it's similar but i mean like between you and me and i guess all of our listeners now um we are (laughs) there are surgeons who may not routinely get the job done in 120 minutes and so yep. that we do have a cohort of colleagues orthopedic colleagues i work with that will still get a pivocaine spinal okay well listen kind of on the same to- topic now so i so so far gaz has gone spinal mobility ambulatory spinal so i know the answer to this but i'm going to ask it because again i don't think it's clear intrathecal opioids or not and i know the answer but tell it say it to me tell it to me <laughs> No, 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 I, I don't like them. No, no, uh, no, just, no, no. We can provide analgesia in different ways that don't have the side effect profile. Okay. And likewise, the same, same uh, argument. I'm kind of guessing we're going to get into what you're going to do at the end. We're going to get the Gansden recipe for, uh, for hips right at the end. So stay right to the end of the podcast to hear all of that. I'm guessing you don't catheterize them because you get them to come in and take, uh, go to the washroom or the bathroom and empty the bladder before you do your anesthesia, right? Yeah, exactly. Unless it's a planned big long revision that we expected to be like four hours. Yeah, there's a time when a part of our order set for the PACU patients were um, after total joints was straight cath the bladder, you know, at will. Yeah, and and so they were all getting and they're all getting a straight cath, which is you know part of the drive here is to avoid potential urinary tract infections Absolutely. and so that's why we didn't get but got away from catheterizing them in the OR. So so that that rate has plummeted with the short acting spinal. That's really interesting. Now, I don't want you to give me the answers as to what you do, but I want to know, number one, in addition to the spinal, do you addition, do you deliver some additional peripheral regional anesthesia? That's question one. Yes. Aha, this is going to be exciting. And do you deliver the same peripheral regional anesthesia irrespective if they're having a spinal or a GA? Because presumably there must be some of your patients that get a GA. Uh, of course, yeah. I mean, there's some that come in on novel anticoagulants or refuse a spinal and that so we have to have a, a plan b yeah largely yes okay 
Yep. So I'm really excited about hearing all of this because I do a whole mix of things. I haven't got a fixed recipe, which is kind of why I'm hoping I can get some answers here. Like, come on, Jeff. Why isn't local anesthetic infiltration good enough? I've told you that there are some of my surgical colleagues that say, don't worry about blocks. I'll just do the local. So why isn't that good enough? Or is it? I don't know that it, that it isn't, honestly. Okay. Like, if you have a good... So I, our issue... Not our issue. I think a lot. the issue at a lot of places is one of consistency. So if I hand an orthopedic surgeon a syringe and say, infiltrate the joint to your satisfaction, and, and I do it six different times, I'll see six different ways of doing it. And so there are good infiltrators and there are, what's the right word here? Uh, orthopedic surgeons aren't patient creatures by nature, right? So I think there's a lot of mm-hmm. like squirty, squirty, you know, or here and there, and then inconsistent results. Where if, if you do a ultrasound guided block of whatever type you want to do, yes. Each and every time, I, I'd be shocked if your blocks don't work the same way each and every time, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have this back and forth with our surgeons sometimes because they'll they'll want to go back to using uh, infiltration with some sort of cocktail and and uh, we'll have to sort of talk them off the ledge. And it, it ends up becoming a discussion about, well, how much, okay, let's, if we're going to do both, how much local are you going to use and not, yes. we're going to use and that sort of thing. Oh, cocktails. I could use a cocktail right now, actually. Mm, I'd love yeah. a cocktail. Do you like yeah, do you like cocktails? I do. Do you know who makes the best cocktails in my house? Tell me. Your wife. No. 10-year-old no. son. Yeah. What? He, he, he hold. He learned how he learned. <laughs> I think he watched he watched a movie. I forget the name of the movie. It was some like action adventure movie where the one of the characters was a was a bartender. And then he he went went to his room, came back with a white shirt and a little apron on and oh started to started to like Google, how do I make a Manhattan? So he makes a mean Manhattan, man. Oh. Like when you, when, when you come visit us, yeah. I'll get hold to and Negroni's. Those are his two Manhattan. Oh Negroni. my goodness. Wow. So he'll, he'll, uh, I'll sometimes get a message from him. Uh, somehow I'm going to be back from work and he says, dad, what do you want? I'm going to make you a cocktail for when you get home. You want a Manhattan or a Negroni? Awesome. Oh, my goodness. That sounds amazing. <laughs> and, and and he's self-taught? Wow. Okay. We, we Our filters are obviously too good on our uh, on our YouTube at home. I don't think my kids would be able to get to get access to that, but maybe I need to relax the filters <laughs> to, to allow them to do that. Well, listen, seeing as we're kind of um, just changing topic for a second, I think it would be a good time. We Last time, we forgot to have the competition question for winning a mug. So. Oh, yeah. I think we're going to run this competition now. And I've got a good question, which will really work out who's been listening or not. So to be in with a chance of winning a Block It Like It's Hot mug, we need to know, in episode two, to be in with a chance of winning a mug, where did Jeff say he just returned from where he was teaching cervical ESP blocks? Mm. So if you want to answer that, they've they got to give us some answers. So how can they get these answers to us, Jeff? Uh, you can DM us to our Twitter account at Block It underscore hot underscore pod or the instagram account block it like it's hot all underscores in between or yeah. email us at block it like it's hot podcast no apostrophes at gmail absolutely so perfect and what we'll do is we'll collect uh, all of the names put them in a hat or a, a virtual hat and we will pick a winner so please uh please do get on with that and hope we love look forward to giving away some more merchandise awesome Okay, man. Let's get back to let's get back to this uh, this context. We hear a lot about anterior approaches versus the minimally invasive approaches versus standard approaches. So MIS. So, do you think that the type of approach has an impact on the regional anesthesia requirements? Uh, yeah, to a degree, for sure. I mean, the tissue trauma and 
where it's happening, where it's occurring in, in the soft tissues, at least is, is going to be different. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, so I think it's one of the whole drivers of the interior approach is that muscle splitting, get down sort of with as little trauma as possible, yep. get to the joint. But then once you get to the joint though, I mean, the joint's a joint, you're opening up the capsule, you're sawing out the bone and you're putting in components. So, um, so that's still going to hurt. It does have a, a bit of an effect on our our block choice, but not as much as you'd think. I mean, I just told you we, we do the same blocks every time, mostly. Yeah. Okay. Well, listen. Talking about blocks, because we've got the option to sort of work out what you know what the gold standard is, and then we're going to say, well, what's the minimum? So let's assume that you're going to give the patient a spinal anesthetic because we're kind of going along with that vibe. And I'll, from my point of view, I'll be thinking that I'm doing a general anesthesia just to kind of give give um, breadth here. What is the first block that you might add? We'll do a pang block. That's okay. that's our that's now our go-to. We were and we've gone through like the knees. I mean, the same story. We've gone through an evolution of how we're doing this. So, what did you start with? Did you start with femoral or fasciaiaca, or did you not? You just skip those? No, no, no. We used we used both of those. Okay. Uh, femoral f- early on. Fasciaiaca was fairly recent, actually. Uh-huh. Like a super inguinal fasciaiaca. Yeah, I, I I'm a fan of that block. I, I think it's it's fun to do and um, it gets you great results. Of course, the issue is you're aiming to achieve a block of the femoral nerve. And so again, when, when our surgeons were really interested in getting them out the same day and mobilizing and doing rehab in the recovery room, that became inconsistent with, um, with that practice. So, uh, so that's why we changed to the peng block there. Were, you know, I've done lumbar plexus blocks for these. Well, you know, it's interesting. You should say that I remember watching the one and only Sandy cop, uh, <coughs> who was giving a lecture many years ago talking about her history or her experience in regional anesthesia. And she was talking about how uh, at one of the institutes that she was working at, there was a variation in practice for hip arthroplasty. And she introduced lumbar plexus catheters as the gold standard that everybody got. And actually standardizing the care with the way that all patients were treated, the way that the infusion rate was dropped at a certain point or stopped at a certain point to get patients moving um, by the time they did ward rounds, etc. in the morning. It was fascinating. So I can see why uh, lumbar plexus is was a was a great block and in fact during my regional anesthesia fellowship um the the guy who was running is a a, a very uh, a very uh, incredible guy a chap called Winston Catino so he was running the fellowship when I when I did it he used to do nerve stimulator guided lumbar plexus blocks for every patient having hips oh yeah and in fact he used to say yeah and he said to me you know what don't worry if you use muscle relaxant to intubate them just turn the current up and it will still work and actually we'd intubate the patient he'd then do a lumbar plexus block he'd just crank up i'm not saying this is the right thing to do he'd crank up the current and actually we'd still get twitches and he never failed he never failed but having looked with ultrasound i can't believe that i did it landmark with uh, with a needle now i don't think i'd ever go that way and i certainly wouldn't advocate necessarily doing uh, what, what, what he was doing back then <laughs> we'll do we'll do it every once in a while lumbar plexus not not so much for our outpatient elective hips because again we we want them to get up and moving but um more like big operations where they're going to stay in hospital for a couple of days and it's largely for mfb do you know mfb mfb uh, i can only think of rude things uh, oh so- <laughs> well i know your mind goes there maximum fellow benefit so we we could do a femoral but hey you're a, you're a duke fellow 
you're getting maximum fellow benefit today, buddy. Let's let's do a lumbar plexus. I like that. So let, you know what I think we should do? We've just assumed that everybody knows what PENG stands for. And you said that's your go-to block. So PENG stands for the pericapsian nerve group. So that was a group that described this initial block, right? And the whole, whole idea of this block was to catch the articular branches for the anterior aspects of the hip joint, right? Exactly, yeah. So uh, pericapsular nerve group. But, I mean, this is one of the... One of my favorite stories. Like, you know, Phil Peng was the guy who innovated this, and so that's right, man. To be able to get your 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 surname as a, as an acronym that works for that, I'm trying to find something that works for Gadsden. It's just it's just I'm coming up blank, man. Gen- genicular anterior direct. It could I don't know. be G A doesn't seem. Oh, something like that. that you got it. That's it. That is like it. That. Okay, the Gadsden approach. So yeah, so again, it represents a very similar journey or philosophy that we've been seeing with other blocks. Mm-hmm. Find an area where you can hit a bone, layer out some local there, and you're getting a motor sparing approach to the area that you're interested in. So you get the articular fibers of the femoral nerve, the obturator, and the accessory obturator nerve as they come over the pubic ramus or under the pubic ramus as in the case of the obturator. Mm-hmm. So does a great job. We found that w- when we transitioned from supraingual fasciate liaca to pang, yeah. our surgeons didn't even know. They didn't what? notice a difference in terms of, in terms of the patient's Is that responses. Right? Yeah, they had the same same analgesic experience. That 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 literally blows my mind because the next question I was going to ask you was. Um, now hold on, is your surgeon doing local anesthetic infiltration as well? If you so you're, or are they letting you like the previous discussion we had about you know we're going to do all the local? Are you guys mainly doing all of the local? Yes, correct. Okay, so what about the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve distribution? So you know where you may be having an incision because for me, when I look at that diagram, that cross-sectional view, when you when you where you're going to aim your needle down on the iliopubic eminence, you've got out of the way, you've got the femoral artery and the femoral nerve. But on your way in, potentially at risk of needle puncture, if you're not careful, is the lateral femoral cutaneous nerve. So what's to stop you from dropping a couple of mils by that bad boy on the way down to being pangtastic? Oh, <laughs> pangtastic! You're reading my mind, man. That's exactly what we do. So we put we take a Boom. 20 mil we take a 20 mil syringe of 0.2 percent rapivacaine with uh, one to 400,000 epi or 2.5 okay. mics per mil, and okay. put 15 of that on the pang. I don't think you need much more than 15 to okay. be honest and then uh, save five for that uh, lfcn that's your recipe is it that's our recipe yeah mm, that is really interesting of course for the, the the beauty about the ping is you should be getting as you said articular femoral and obturator and accessory obturator you're adding in the lateral femoral for um for cutaneous issues with regards to the incision so the only thing we're not dealing with which may not be a irrele- may not be relevant for hip arthroplasty is all the posterior innovation right so we've got sciatic we've got superior and inferior gluteal um and it does it matter that we're not getting those well, it didn't seem like it did matter. And then I, f- I found a article that characterized the density of innervation of the hip capsule. And there's just yeah. so much more on the anterior uh, portion of it. The back is not that richly innervated as, as, as compared to the front. So, okay. so I think that's why that's why it works. So, but I think we we just literally jumped and landed on the the, the Gazden recipe oh. almost prematurely, right? So, Peng and LFCN is your standard in addition to a spinal. Yeah. But I, I need to broaden this out a bit because here's the bit that kind of really blows my mind because I'm hearing people using either the ESP block 
or the quadratus lumborum block for hip arthroplasty surgery and I don't get it. I don't get it. So ESP, I, I kind of do because, you know, for the reasons that we're talking about, but only really, only really makes sense to me if that local anesthetic is really going across that thick fascia and 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 getting down towards the lumbar plexus. Otherwise, why would you do an ESP um, for, for hip arthroplasty surgery? But we know there's data on there because Ed Mariano, he's done some work and they've changed their whole um, hip arthroplasty pathway to ESP blocks. And quadratus lumborum, now listen, we're going to talk about this in another episode, QL isn't a sole entity. I think, yeah. depending upon where you put your local answer, you can get a different block. But I'm thinking if you're doing a quadratus lumborum block, certainly a, um, a transmuscular or an anterior quadratus lumborum block, the whole reason we do that is to get abdominal analgesia we don't want to get so, so, so help me out what do you think about this i'm with you i the esp i i think if you're getting any benefit out of that it's one of two things either your local is getting ventral and you're getting you're doing a weak lumbar plexus block which would work uh-huh. right i think that would that yeah. would that would do it or there's there's something to uh and we talked about this in the esp episode there's there's a feeling that just anesthetizing the fascia of the thoracolumbar fascia may provide analgesia in some way, shape, or form. So, one of those. And so, I don't doubt that it works for some people. I just, I, it seems like a very indirect approach. Whereas the uh-huh. PENG seems to be like the most targeted distal approach to to this conundrum. But QL don't get it. Also, to me, that's an abdominal block. And yeah, you'll get yeah. you'll get T twelve and L one for sure. But that's just only part of it, right? So I think if you're if you're using if you're calling it a QL and getting benefit for uh, for hip arthroplasty what you're really doing is a lumbar plexus block. So therefore, you should call it a lumbar plexus block. But I might Ooh. be being slightly controversial there. Daring discourse here. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say, if you think I was being controversial there, just Uh-oh. you wait. Okay. Just you wait. I think that we might be making this all too complicated. So I want to tell you about three of my friends. In fact, one of them... I met the surgeon of this friend last night. I was at a party and I met the surgeon of this friend last night. So I spoke <laughs> to the surgeon directly. But So we'll speak about friend number one, who's the only person whose identity I'm going to reveal. Friend number one is Alan McFarlane. Um, oh, nice. Very good yeah. friend of mine, current president of RUK. He works in Glasgow and his colleagues have there have developed a day case total hip arthroplasty pathway. And so he's um, they've developed it and he's practicing it. And I'm going to talk about what he does. So they use a spinal. They don't give any intrathecal opioid. They don't use any local anesthetic infiltration. And they get most of their patients out on the day case. The only thing they do do as part of their pathway, and this happened when they removed the intrathecal morphine, is they give three doses of modified release oxycodone. One pre-op, one on the night of surgery, and one on the morning after. That's it. Three doses. But they do... Uh, day case hip arthroplasty just with spinal and this multimodal analgesia. They yeah. also give dex and, and tranexamic sure. acid. So that's, page, sure. that's friend one. Okay, well, but I, I, I'm going to give you the full sequence because I want I want you to hear the full progression okay. and then tell me what All you right. think. All right. I'll be really fast. Friend number two uses ambulatory spinal, intrathecal prilocaine, um, no opioid, and that's it. So literally, huh. that's it. Ambulatory spinal and nothing else. And I've got another friend, and this is a surgeon I met yesterday. And this surgeon can do his arthroplasty skin to skin in 40 minutes. 
and he uses intrathecal pridocaine, but he uses a magic mix, <laughs> kind of fitting with your cocktails of ropivacaine, morphine, clonidine, adrenaline, and a steroid. So we've got three approaches. Let Are we making this too complicated, man? Just do a spinal and that's it. Or spinal and local anesthetic or nothing. Tell me. Yeah, I think... I agree. I think that you're, you, yes, we are, we could be making this more complicated, but it all depends on A, the goal. Yeah. Is this, is this ambulatory? Yeah. I think there's some patient selection, maybe patient coaching factors in there as well, right? So I think that's the key, right? I think there's a lot of patients, and this may be a UK versus US thing, but I think a lot of our patients really desire and expect to be as analgesed as possible afterwards and not put up with a lot of discomfort. Whereas I can imagine Alan and his team saying to their patients, all right, love, here's a wee dose of oxycodone and then you're going to go down to the lobby and then out the door and you're going to be great. <laughs> that is, I think that was brilliant. I think that was, I think that was your best accent today. Oh, um, I, to be clear, I'm not imitating Alan McFarlane. That's just my, that's a generic Scottish accent. No, 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 that, no, that was a generic, that was a generic Scottish That wasn't Alan, but actually that was your best accent today. Oh, that was brilliant. I appreciate that. No, but I think there's a lot to that, right? I think we miss this sometimes, as you say, yeah. is the coaching and then saying, man, you are, you're getting your hip replaced. There is going to be some discomfort and this is this is what it's going to look like. Day one is going to be your most challenging day. Day two is going to be a little bit better. Day three a little bit better, and then so on and so forth. And given that sort of trajectory to look forward to, people can get through that. I, th- yeah. I think. Yeah. Well, see, so the thing that, and I think we'll we'll conclude on on what we you and I both have kind of arrived and think is a is a great recipe. The thing that's blowing my mind is that there is one of my friends who does a spinal no local no blocks and the patients get up and mobilize i don't get it but you must have a slick and efficient surgeon who goes in there minimal tissue disruption gets in and does the work the patients know they're going to be getting up and walking they've got their standard multimodal prescription written up and ready for them to go as they get out here they've got physiotherapy ready to show them how to walk the only way these processes of ambulatory um surgery can work with with all of that work that goes in in the background yeah so i'm so and i think that's not easy to set up um and i think you know we would love to achieve uh, ambulatory uh hip replacements at my place and there have been some situations where we've done it but i think to get all of those pieces lined up that's a lot of work there's a lot of work to make that work so um and the other thing so what we what we do have um is an inconsistency in what happens with discharge medication, or we call them TTAs or to take away, or um, the orders that patients get sent home with. I don't think there's a consistent way in working out what is enough to give somebody and what do you give them. And I, I remember um, Ed Mariano's group, in fact, it was one of the, the, the junior residents or somebody who was even a student at that stage presented a paper at one of the ASRA meetings I went to where they looked at the opioid use within the previous 24 hours and they worked out a tailored dose for the patient to go home with a with strict instructions on how to taper it. Yeah, I remember that. That was a great project. Again, getting to that sort of directed recovery instructions. Here's what you're going to do rather than just giving someone a bottle of pills and a good luck to you, sir. Yeah, yeah. That kind of thing. I like that. So Jeff, give me an idea. I think we're going to close up here uh, on exactly how you do what you do. So let's have a patient and let's call this patient Henry. So Henry's coming to you for a total hip arthroplasty. 
tell me what you do to Henry, and you've got two minutes to do this. Okay. Not to, not to actually do the blocks, but to tell me about it. Oh, I could do it, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Henry's in. He's getting changed. He uses the restroom on the way back to the block area. He uh, gets checked in. He's sitting on the edge of the bed. Uh, we do a short-acting spinal with 80 milligrams of lidocaine or 52.5 milligrams of mepivacaine. So that would be four mils of 2% lidocaine. Correct. Right? Yep. That's yeah. our that's our go-to now. And lay, yep. gets laid down, and we'll take a um, ultrasound probe, put it over the inguinal crease, do our peng block with 15 mils of low-concentration ropivacaine with a bit of epinephrine in it, and then do save five mils of that for the LFCN. And then Henry is off to the OR. Bob's your uncle. And you go, all right, Henry, off you go. <laughs> hey, right, Henry. So, so that's it. That's Is that simple? Yeah. Again, I, I think your comment about wow. overcomplicating hips is is on the money. I think you we go through contortions sometimes to get all these things, and it's just not necessary. Well, listen, I'm fascinated, I and I think... I think that's going to be what I do. I'm going to I'm going to finish up with one comment. Uh, I've started working, or occasionally done some some work with a surgeon at my at my hospital at Guy's and St Thomas's. And the first time I did a list with him, the first thing he said to me was, "Can you do peng blocks?" Really? I said, "Yes, I can." And the reason he said that was one of my previous fellows, a chap called Ganesh Nair, He'd done a list, uh, an operating list with this surgeon and said, I can do a motor sparing block. And this is a surgeon who hadn't normally accepted any blocks of any kind. Hmm. So Ganesh said to him, I could do a motor sparing block. Let me know what you think. So he did pain blocks. And when the surgeon went to follow up the patients the next day, he noticed the difference. Oh, cool. So he was now saying, I don't want any, any, if you, if you could do a pain block, please do it. And that's actually something, and then, you know, that's a surgeon accepting it. So I think we're onto something really interesting here. So I, I'm really happy. I've really enjoyed this episode. Thank you, Jeff. Yeah, so maybe we'll make it complicated, but we keep, we can keep it simple, right? Yep, totally. The other thing we haven't mentioned yet, I'll just say that in the last 30 seconds yeah. is we've talked today about arthroplasty, but we do a fair number of hip scopes as well. And Ooh. also a fairly painful operation, especially intra-op. And so I, we found a peng block is quite effective for that too because i mean they're jamming that scope mm-hmm. maybe jamming is not the right verb there but inserting the scope into the uh in through the capsule and doing a lot of manipulation and that sort of thing so I, we a pang I, I think I'm interested to hear other people's thoughts on that but pang seems great for yeah. that too so guys let us know if you are using uh, a pang block for your hip arthroplasty and all your hip scopes we'd be really interested to hear that so jeff i guess we're kind of there that that all, all that's left is for us to wrap up right yeah We've already mentioned where they can they can get us the Twitter yes. and the YouTube, uh, the YouTube YouTube is at block it like it's hot no apostrophe yes yeah and please yeah hit us up uh, use the hashtag block it like it's hot let us know your feedback send out your questions I, I've been loving the social media interaction and following the conversations afterwards and I am learning so much um, through this process hundred percent yeah a hundred percent so please carry on doing that guys and all that leads us to say until the next episode we hope you block it like it's hot hot.